0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey everyone, I am here with Scott Clark. Scott is the founder and CEO of a company called SigOpt. And he was gracious enough to spend some time with me this morning to talk about uh, his background, the company, and the topic that I am very interested in learning more about, Bayesian optimization. We're sitting in his, in his office in San Francisco. I happen to be in town for the AI conference, and I'm really looking forward to this interview. So welcome, Scott. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to it as well. Awesome. Awesome. So let's just jump right in and have you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in machine learning. Definitely.
1: So, I first got really excited about this while I was in grad school. So, I was a, pursuing a PhD in applied math at Cornell University.
0: Go upstate New York. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> Cornell's great because there's not a lot to do and it's super bad weather all the time. So, you just focus <laughs> on studying and you graduate as soon as possible.
0: I went to RPI undergrad, also upstate New York, and had the same experience. <laughs> nice,
1: nice. I highly recommend it for
0: efficient degrees. RPI had the added advantage of it was hugely skewed towards male students, and so there were even less distractions. <laughs> Fair enough. That's excellent.
1: So basically, I was applying math to a variety of different things. One of the focuses of my degree was bioinformatics. Okay. So I, was my, I had a fellowship from the Department of Energy. So the problem I was trying to attack was genome assembly. And you Uh can think of this as trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle on a supercomputer. So basically, we have a bunch of DNA, and we have to reassemble it into some genome. And the Department of Energy cares about this because if you know the genome, it might be a path towards more efficient biofuels or something like that. Okay. The problem was lots of tunable knobs and levers with these various systems, and we had to configure those to get the best possible performance out of them. And
0: you were the grunt in grad school, exactly, that you had to tune all these lovers. We jokingly <laughs> call
1: this graduate student descent. The idea being. We just need to get to the best configuration, and it doesn't matter how you get there. Yeah. And so the standard way to attack this problem and a lot of got to get your p-value
0: for your paper. And- <laughs> something like
1: that, yeah. I mean, academic incentives are a completely different topic. But
0: yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd toss that in there. <laughs>
1: Fair <laughs> enough. But the idea is there's a couple standard ways people go about attacking a problem like this. Yep. You could try to brute force the problem. So just lay down a grid of all possible options for every configuration and try them all. Right. This was intractable for us because it took 24 hours on a government supercomputer every single time we wanted to try a single configuration.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Randomized search has become very popular, especially in the deep learning literature, for trying to come up with different configurations of hyperparameters and architectures and things like that. Yeah. Turns out much more efficient than grid search, but this is still like trying to climb a mountain by jumping out of an airplane and hoping you land at the peak. Not oh. necessarily the most intuitive way to go about optimizing
0: something. Mm-hmm. A lot of the different algorithms will use randomized initialization. That's different from randomized search.
1: Correct. So when you're building a neural network, you might use randomized initialization on the individual weights, Mm -hmm. and then use some sort of stochastic gradient descent optimizer within that underlying system. This is more of a black box parameter optimization problem I'm talking about, where we're not introspecting the underlying model, but just tuning the higher level configuration parameters. So some of those configuration parameters might have to do with that random initialization or the stochastic gradient descent parameters or something like that. You definitely need to be able to bootstrap efficiently from no data, but doing purely randomized search is not necessarily the most efficient thing you can do.
0: So maybe before we move on, since I think we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about hyperparameter optimization here, you know, let's maybe dig into grid search a little bit more so that we're all starting from the same place. Basically, as I understand it, the idea is you've got some set of Mm hyperparameters. You know, those form an an N-dimensional, you know, N-dimensional, not a cube, but a a, a lattice. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And, you know, grid search is basically systematically you know, going from point to point, like if you were searching for someone in a, a forest, you'd kind of form a grid and kind of attack all those points. Yeah. Where And random is you're basically picking points and the idea is statistically, if you pick enough points, you'll get some level of coverage of, you know, all of the combinations of these hyperparameters. Exactly. So back to your
1: searching in a forest analogy, this is, yeah, jumping out of a helicopter and seeing if the person's there, right. getting back <laughs> in and then continuing to do that over and over again.
0: That's random search. That's
1: randomized search. Right. Another popular method is just manual tuning. So Mm -hmm. trying to do this in your head. And in the forest example, when there's only two dimensions, you might have a lot of intuition about maybe the person's going to be up on a hill or something like that. It can actually be somewhat effective. But once you start to look at 20-dimensional problems, a lot of human intuition starts to break down. And you might not be able to have some of that expert knowledge in the the searching for a human in a forest setting, how to set stochastic gradient descent parameters and number of hidden layers. And learning rates and all these sorts of things, it starts to get very convoluted very quickly. And so manual search, while it can be effective to kind of resolve very localized solutions, is not a great global optimization strategy.
0: And for the typical model that you are seeing, like how many hyperparameters are there?
1: Yeah, so it really depends on the underlying system. So something simple like a random forest might only have a couple that you care about, number of trees number of samples needed to split a node, something like that. As you start to advance maybe into gradient boosting methods, and all of a sudden you have learning rates and other Mm -hmm. sorts of parameters you can tune. But once you get into the deep learning and reinforcement learning regimes, there can be dozens of individual parameters, Mm -hmm. especially if you start to think of the system as a whole. So when you're doing an NLP or computer vision type problem, all of a sudden you have different ways you can parameterize the data as well. And so by looking at that system in its entirety, all of a sudden there can be dozens of parameters and something that grows exponentially like a grid search is completely intractable. The human manual intuition starts to break down Mm -hmm. and randomized search is just too slow to luck into a reasonable
0: solution. Okay, Can you give an example of, in the case of NLP, how the the way you look at the data set changes and increases your parameter space?
1: Yeah, so how you tokenize the text itself. So okay. do you look at different n-gram sizes? Okay. The idea being, do you look at one word at a time, pairs of words, triples Got of it. words? Do you maybe do different thresholds for the frequency within the corpus itself? So maybe cut out words like the, because they're too common, and then also cut out words like bonanza, because they're too rare. Right. And so you can kind of, change the actual feature representation itself before you even feed it into the machine learning algorithm. But these are all tunable knobs and levers. Got it.
0: Okay. And so you were stuck in grad school, like, again, twiddling these, these levers. And, you know, as all innovation happened, you thought there's got to be a better way. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so went around the department and found that this was a very common problem. People in machine learning, people in financial engineering, like everybody were building these, these expert systems, but they needed to be fine-tuned but everybody was using these kind of standard techniques. So expanded my search outside the department and eventually found who would become my PhD advisor in the operations research field. So they've been attacking this problem for decades. If you have a time-consuming and expensive to sample system, how do you most efficiently get to the best configuration? Mm -hmm. So this crops up if you're tuning a particle accelerator, it crops up if you're trying to decide where to place a gold mine, which is where some of the original research came from in the 50s. But it maps extremely well onto a wide variety of computational problems. Okay. You have some input that comes in, some output that you care about. How do you get to the best output in as few input attempts as possible? Mm. So I started working in this field of optimal learning, as it's called in operations research, or sequential model-based optimization, or Bayesian optimization. A lot of fields have different names for sure. it. But the idea is, how do you do this as efficiently as you can? Ended up pivoting my PhD towards working on this problem and ended up being one of the, the chapters in my thesis. And after graduating, I realized that a lot of different people in a lot of different industries had this issue. So I spent two and a half years at Yelp uh, working on their advertising team, okay. applying these same techniques to help do more performant uh, advertising. Okay. The idea being, if you think about it mathematically, an advertising system is very similar to a genome assembly system insofar as a lot of experts spend a lot of time building something, there's a bunch of inputs, and there's an output you care about. Right. In genome assembly, it's better papers because you get a better genome. In advertising system, a bunch of money comes
0: out the other end. Yeah. I mean, clearly there are tons of problems that fit that general <laughs> Exactly, better, right? exactly. And so you started SIGopt. How long have you been at it here?
1: Yeah, so immediately after Yelp, started SIGUP about three years ago, went okay. through Y Combinator in winter 15, have raised a few rounds of funding, most mm-hmm. recently a Series A led by Andreessen Horowitz, and now we're 16 people in San Francisco.
0: Okay. That sounded like a steamboat like, or something. Like a foghorn. <laughs> 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 I swear it's not normally this bad. <laughs> and so I guess, you know, I want to kind of jump into, you know, the the main crux of this interview, which is around this Bayesian optimization. Like, walk me through, you know, the way, you know, folks like Pedro Domingos will talk about like the Bayesians as like this one tribe within machine learning and, you know, as opposed to others, you know, kind of walk me through like I guess what I'm trying to get at is like I've had a couple of conversations with folks about, you know, different aspects of, you know, like Bayesian program learning and other things. But you know, I feel like you know, there's still some, you know, there's still like the, the, some ethos of like what it means to be kind of Bayesian and think about things from that perspective that we haven't fully captured on the podcast. So if we can like start there yeah. and then get to the optimization, that would be, yeah, would be super Yeah, cool. definitely. So
1: the way a lot of those other techniques work, like grid search or random search, is there's no learning happening. And I think that's one of the major differences between kind of the Bayesian optimization approach or the the Bayesian approach to this problem and some of those more traditional techniques. The idea being every single time I evaluate this underlying machine learning pipeline or whatever it is, it's extremely time consuming and expensive. And I wanna be able to leverage that data to decide what to do next. And so a lot of the Bayesian methods rely on this concept of trading off exploration versus exploitation. So we want to be able to learn as much as we can about that underlying response surface, how it varies, how all the parameters interact, over what length scales, how certain we are about specific configurations and how well they'll they'll perform, and learn about that while also exploiting localized information to drive you to better results. And by constantly trading off these two facets, we're able to exponentially faster than something like an exhaustive grid search arrive at better solutions. And the main difference here is the fact that we're learning from the past and using that to influence what we do in the future.
0: And now when I think about this kind of explore-exploit explore, trade-off, one of the things that jumps to mind for me is reinforcement learning. Does that come into play here or maybe less so because the environment itself, the problem itself doesn't you know, necessarily change in response to the inputs?
1: So the the underlying system can change pretty dramatically. So you can think of this as this larger system that that fits around any underlying pipeline. That could be a reinforcement learning pipeline, it could be just a a standard deep learning, or it could be something as simple as a logistic regression or a random forest. And you can think about the fact that every single time we try a new configuration, we want to observe some some sort of output at the end that the user defines. It could be something simple like accuracy, could be the the sharp ratio of a back test of an algorithmic trading strategy or whatever it may yeah. be, and so we use that to kind of influence what we do next. You can think of this as this kind of reinforcement loop as a whole over that entire system, but we 're agnostic to what the underlying yeah. method is
0: no, I, I get that and, and so the, the underlying method is you know could be reinforcement learning or any number of other things, but it also sounds i was i guess what I was asking was are you Are you or could you do reinforcement learning at the top level to optimize the thing that you're optimizing, which could be reinforcement learning as well? So reinforcement learning on the hyperparameter space as opposed to the actual model itself.
1: Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of different approaches to this underlying problem. There's a lot of very cool papers that are at all the top machine learning conferences for attacking this. The way that we attack it is via this concept of sequential model-based optimization. And this is a very Bayesian approach and the idea is we're sequentially learning as much as we can about this underlying system. So once again, using the history to decide what to do in the future. It's model based in the sense that we're building up different surrogate models for how we think individual configurations are going to respond when we actually sample the underlying system. We can use various different things here like Gaussian processes or other kind of Bayesian regression type systems and we want to be able to say given what we think is going to happen how do we sample as efficiently as possible so then we want to say what do we think is going to improve in expectation the most what's the highest probability of improvement in terms of that new configuration to suggest and then that loops back into the underlying system after you sample it and we learn update the posterior of these individual surrogate methods Optimize on them and repeat that entire process.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how do you get to the kind of this, the proposed model for the model based piece of this? Mm-hmm. In general, in
1: Bayesian optimization, usually you pick a specific type of model and, and go from there. So, mm-hmm. in some of the open source work I did at Yelp, it was kind of very cut and dry use a Gaussian process, use expected improvement to optimize, and go through kind of extremely sequentially. This is very similar to Spearmint, another popular library. What's it say that one again? Spearmint. It was an open source library out of Harvard. Right. Very similar to the metric optimization engine or Mo, which I wrote at Yelp. Also similar to like GPIOpt, which is a kind of a more recent one. Okay. This is kind of the, the bread and butter Bayesian optimization approach. Gaussian process is expected improvement. What Sigup represents though is this ensemble-based approach. So different surrogate models, different acquisition functions, different covariance kernels for learning how the parameters interact, Mm -hmm. as well as not just kind of that standard build a a single sequential surrogate model based approach, but really taking all of these different optimizers and optimizing and, and making it automatic. So you can select something ahead of time because you know you want to take a very specific approach, or you can take the more generalized approach and say, We're not necessarily going to say we're going to use this specific surrogate model. We want to learn along the way what's the best possible thing for that underlying system that we're
0: optimizing. Right. So to uh, take a step back, you are, in the former case where you're picking a a model, a specific model, you know, let's say we're assuming a Gaussian distribution, then basically we've got this hyperparameter space, we are, I'm trying to get at like how you know so the parameters of your gaussian distribution will be your mean and your standard deviation and how are we like what's the process for for identifying those that is then you know that we're doing sequentially
1: gotcha so the way that a gaussian process works is that it's assuming that the response of that underlying system that we're sampling is going to be gaussian distributed at any given point so it's yeah. not a single gaussian distribution or something similar to like a Gaussian mixture model, what it actually is is an infinite number of potential Gaussian responses for every potential input. And then the way the Gaussian processes are analytically defined, once you start to sample underlying points, you can explicitly build up what that distribution is at sample points or unsampled points. The main thing that controls this is what's called a covariance kernel. And what that is is how much information do I get from sampling point A about some other point B. So does it decay exponentially? Is there some sort of high variance or noise associated with it? What are the length scales over which all the different parameters interact? This becomes doubly complicated once you start to look at heterogeneous configuration spaces with integers and continuous variables and categorical variables and things like that.
0: Is this covariance matrix, is this something that you're learning as part of the process. It's not something that you know a priori.
1: Exactly. So you can set it a priori, but you you can also learn as you go. So there are tunable parameters around these covariance kernels, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's yeah, it's turtles all the way down. But um, <laughs> the idea here is once you can analytically define, this is maybe a surrogate function. I may use. I may use a Gaussian process. Here's a specific class of covariance kernels, like an ARD kernel or something like that. Then you can explicitly say, okay, how good is the fit given what I've observed so far? And because you're defining the system analytically and you've effectively mapped the problem from this extremely sparse, time-consuming, expensive underlying system that you're sampling, and now you've mapped it over to this surrogate space, you can start to throw kind of the kitchen sink of mathematics at the problem. And use that to kind of optimize the underlying covariance kernels, pick the correct ones, find the right surrogate functions, and then ultimately leverage that information to decide what's the, the point that has the highest probability of improvement or expected improvement or whatever it may be.
0: So is the, the surrogate space in this case the covariance kernel or the kind of this vector, this infinite vector of the distributions? So the covariance kernel defines that infinite vector. Okay. <laughs> or at that functional
1: distribution. So there's two ways to think about Gaussian processing. And
0: so your covariance kernel is infinite by infinite dimensions or something on that order, or? I mean, it can. Or how how do you, is part of the goal to kind of constrain the dimensionality of this covariance kernel? So the covariance kernel itself will take in inputs in the configuration space
1: and basically say, how much covariance can I expect between these two points? So it does map into a real number. Technically, for various types of covariance kernels, there are these tunable parameters that are continuous. So like, technically, yes, there's an infinite number of different ways you can parameterize that. Right. But what we're able to do is say, given what we've observed so far, what's the most likely parameterization or what's a distribution of likely parameterizations and leverage that to decide, okay, this is what we think is a reasonable surrogate function. And then once mm-hmm. again, do that across a wide variety of them.
0: Okay. I'm still not fully getting the, where the infinite distributions come in. Yeah.
1: yeah. So there's two ways to think about a Gaussian process. One is from the point-wise perspective. And right. so the idea is at every single point, we're going to assume the response from this underlying system that we're sampling Follows is going to be Gaussian, Gaussian distribution. distribution. Right. But every single potential configuration has a different potential Gaussian response to it. So, so there's some mean. in this Meaning, st- so
0: you've got an input point, and then you've got this space of configurations, and each of those configurations translates this input point to a different distribution. So, so, so right. the, yeah. the input point is a potential configuration.
1: So what, maybe I'll take a step back and do an explicit <laughs> example here. So let's say we're tuning some neural network, and we want to find the, the optimal learning rate. So maybe initially we try something like just 0.5 or something like that, and we get a response back. Okay. And we're optimizing for the accuracy of a fraud detection pipeline. And so we'd be like, okay, we get 0.7 cross-validated AUC. that, That looks all right.
0: So the thing that we're optimizing for is our learning rate. And the input is, you know, we're not talking about inputs to our neural network and outputs to our neural network. We're talking about an aggregate, the error.
1: Well, so the inputs are, we're going to be tuning this machine learning pipeline. And so at this high, like meta optimization layer, we're going to be saying, okay, we're going to put in a learning rate, and then we're going to go through the training and cross validation and all sorts of things and come up with some metric that we care about. So maybe cross validated AUC. Right. And our goal is to find the learning rate that tunes this entire pipeline in such a way that it maximizes that output. And so the way that this works in this sequential model-based optimization framework is, okay, so we sampled 0.5 learning rate and got 0.7 out as as the result. And maybe there's a little bit of uncertainty associated with that. So then let's say we want to model what we think is going to happen if we try 0.6. So we have a little bit of information because we've already sampled 0.5. So what we do is we build up this Gaussian process that says, okay, I'm pretty sure that it's going to pass near this point that I've already sampled, but then maybe the information decays pretty rapidly. So I expect to see maybe 0.6 plus or minus 0.1 if I were to sample a point further away from it. And what you can think of is every potential input learning rate to tune this pipeline has its own Gaussian response that we're expecting. It has its own mean. It has its own variance. And so we can explicitly build that up once we define the covariance kernel. And, of course, as you expand
0: this out into more dimensions... So in this example, we're talking about what does the covariance kernel look like?
1: Yeah. So we would explicitly set a covariance kernel like an ARD kernel that says, okay, we're expecting some sort of like squared exponential decay of this kind of information from sampling these different points.
0: And so is the covariance kernel... Again, in this particular case, it's going, to be, it's going to describe the relationship between the learning rate and the output.
1: So it's going to describe the relationship between like, individual samples of that learning rate. So does that vary where we expect wildly different results after 0.01 increments, or is it 0.1 increments? Do we expect it to be an extremely noisy response, or do we expect it to be fairly well-behaved? There's various different parameters of this covariance kernel that basically say, how much information effectively do I get after sampling point A about some other point B?
0: Is the dimensionality of the covariance kernel fixed when we start or does it increase in dimensionality as we sample?
1: So it takes in the input, which is the the actual configurations. So in this case, it would just be a one-dimensional, just the learning rate. But you can imagine us extending this out. So it takes in a vector, which is a specific configuration, or two vectors, actually, and says, okay, how much covariance is there between these two points, these two potential configurations? That being said, you can parameterize that covariance kernel in different ways, depending on which specific kernel you've picked. So in something like an ARD kernel, which is this the squared exponential drop-off, there's various length scales that you can tune. So maybe we know... How fast rate, the drop-off
0: is, that kind yeah, of thing?
1: Yeah, does it vary over 0.1, but then something like the number of hidden layers might vary over orders of magnitude larger. So like 100 hidden layers is very similar to 101, but very different than 200.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm still not sure that I'm very clear on the the kernel in this specific example, right? the dimensionality of the kernel is one by one? Like, is it yeah, a so scalar it, or it, is it- takes
1: it, in a single value. So that's just the learning rate. All right. Well, so the I
0: dimensionality- I guess I'm thinking of it as, a, I'm thinking of it as a, a matrix. Is it a function or is it something else? Or should I not be thinking of it yes. as a matrix?
1: So you can define it as a matrix where it's every point, the, the pairwise covariance of every point you've sampled so far. Right. So as you sample,
0: the dimensionality of this thing is growing.
1: Of the underlying covariance matrix, but the underlying covariance function is just a function. So there's no kind of dimensionality okay. associated with it. Okay. <laughs> so it's basically, if I've sampled 10 different points, then I could have a 10 by 10 matrix, which is the covariance matrix, yeah. where every single actual instance inside that matrix is, how does 0.7 well, covary well. with 0.3, or right. whatever it may be. And this, as a whole, helps us define the Gaussian process, which then gives us this this stochastic surrogate function for what we think is going to happen if we sample outside of the points that we've already
0: explicitly observed. Okay. And it does that by way of defining the kernel. So how do we get from the kernel, from from the the matrix to the kernel? Is that done explicitly? It's the other way around.
1: So you start with a kernel, (laughs) and then the kernel defines the matrix. Every single individual value within that matrix is defined as. I got it.
0: So we're specifying the kernel. In this case, you said ADR is ARD. ARD. So it's the. What does ARD stand for? You said that? Blanking on that all of a sudden. But it's the squared Gaussian falloff. Yeah, yeah. So what's now unclear for me is if you've picked a sample in your input space and you've run your your underlying process and you have an output value from that sample is the covariance kernel used to build up like what you expect it to see and then you push that all through and you get what you actually saw Mm -hmm. and then you can update the covariance kernel
1: and then that covariance matrix gets one more row and one more column because now we have how this new point varies with all of the previously observed points. And then we can use that to update our gaussian process and now we have this new posterior result that we can use to decide what we sample next okay and what we're doing is we're not just kind of doing naive optimization on that gaussian process response itself we don't just want to find the point with highest mean or something like that what Mm -hmm. we want to do is apply an acquisition function to it and say given this is what I think is going to happen if I sample any of these potential input points, how do I find the point with the highest expected improvement or the highest probability of improvement? Or which one's going to give me the most knowledge about the eventual optimize, the knowledge gradient method?
0: And so acquisition function is a new term that you just introduced. Is that something that is Model-based, like the covariance kernel is model-based around this ADR? Do you pick a a model that you use for your acquisition function as well?
1: Yeah, so this is the optimization part. of So the sequential part of sequential model-based optimization Uh is leveraging the history to build up these... Surrogate the models. Covariance the covariance kernel and uh, keeping it updated yeah. and all that yeah. stuff. The model-based part is actually deciding, okay, this is what we think the response is going to be in these unsampled configurations. Yep. So that's the Gaussian process. Then right. the optimization component is, given that surrogate model, yep. what do we actually optimize for sampling next before we repeat this entire
0: process? And so that particular piece is really focused on you know, you've got this massive potential state space for your hyperparameters. You know, how do, we, how do we choose a sample path through the hyperparameter space that minimizes basically wasting time and not adding information to exactly. our process? And
1: this is what really controls that explore-exploit trade-off. Right. So a popular acquisition function is expected improvement. And that is basically, okay. how much do I think I'm going to beat the best thing I've seen so far by... Mm-hmm. So if I've seen a pretty good AUC in my fraud detection pipeline, now all of a sudden I want to be able to do as as well as possible beyond that. So we're playing king of the hill effectively. Another popular one that's kind of maybe a little bit more intuitive to to grasp is probability of improvement. If I were to sample this unsampled point, what's the probability that I beat the best thing I've seen so far? And so these have different exploration exploitation trade-offs insofar as Probability of improvement might be a little bit more conservative, like we're going to kind of keep edging it up slowly, whereas expected improvement kind of takes the magnitude of the gain into account. So it might try something far away because it thinks there could be something great that it has just never seen before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And are there other common examples?
1: Yeah, so another one, unfortunately, they get a little bit more complicated to internalize, (laughs) but another popular one is knowledge gradient. So this is what my PhD advisor worked on during his PhD. Um, The idea is...
0: I'm imagining from the name, like, that's kind of based on information theory and, like, how much we're going to learn by checking this point. Exactly.
1: And and, uh, the goal is to learn as much as we can about that eventual best point. And so it's, it's more information theoretic acquisition function. And then you can kind of define anything that you want with the goal of eventually getting to this best one. So these are probably the three most popular, but you could imagine doing composites of this or some sort of like upper confidence bound based acquisition function. And the idea is you want it to as efficiently as possible trade off exploration and exploitation because learning about that underlying system and how it performs and things like that's important. But at the end of the day, you just want the best performing model.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think turtles all the way down strikes me as that. Like it's, (laughs) you've got, You've got hyperparameters for your model. You've got hyperparameters for your pipeline. And then you've got hyperparameters for your optimization system. Yeah. And presumably, I'm imagining that you are also trying to optimize the hyperparameter, hyperparameters at that top layer for your optimization yeah. system as well. And this is exactly why SigOpt exists, (laughs) because there's some incredible research out there.
1: A lot of members of our team have have contributed to the academic uh, research and a lot of the open source out there. There's a lot of promise that Bayesian optimization has, but unfortunately, a lot of expert time is wasted optimizing the optimizer figuring out the best way to tune all of these turtles all the way down. And I think that's one of the places where at least the open source that I released, the metric optimization engine, even though it was very popular on GitHub, it kind of failed to deliver on that promise because it required an expert to sit and fine tune all these different things. So the goal of a company like SIGOPT is can we optimize the optimizer for you and create this automatic ensemble that makes all of these trade-offs so that you as an expert can focus on fraud detection And we'll focus on black box optimization for you.
0: Okay. And so, you know, we've described a bunch of different kind of variants in this process. Are there specific, you know, invariants for SIGOP in your process? Like, you know, like for example, you know, basing everything on a Bayesian process. That's one way of doing this. Like, is the product based around that and, and what other kind of invariants are there in the way you approach this?
1: Yeah, so at the very highest level, we're just black box optimization. So there's okay. inputs to a system, there's an output or set of outputs that we wanna optimize, and we're gonna try to come up with the Got best it. set of inputs. So Bayesian optimization is an extremely efficient way to do this, especially when it's time consuming and expensive to sample that underlying system. Got it. There's lots of different variants of Bayesian optimization. So instead of using like a Gaussian process, We could use a Bayesian neural network for the underlying surrogate function. Mm -hmm. Instead of using Bayesian optimization, we could use a genetic algorithm or particle swarm or simulated annealing or even just a a, a convex gradient based method. The idea being SIGOP takes care of that that optimization of the optimizer and automatically selects the best one for you. Most of our methods or almost all of our methods are Bayesian in nature, but we're not constrained to that necessarily.
0: Yeah, I guess that was the question that I was trying to get at, like, do you how far do you go? Do you, you know, also now or envision a future where because you're providing this black box capability, you know, you may, you know, do, you know, the Bayesian optimization, but also you know, sample or test, you know, the results that you'd get from particle swarms and other types of methods. Definitely.
1: So in-house, we've built this very robust evaluation framework for deciding whether or not specific algorithms fare well in different contexts. This is what we use when we integrate a new paper and want to make sure that like with high statistical confidence, it actually outperforms what we're currently doing. And we use this as kind of our our internal metric for deciding what to do but we're agnostic to the underlying methods we just want the best possible thing for our customers it turns out for the types of problems that we're attacking bayesian optimization is an incredibly good fit and it's kind of underutilized because it's so difficult to get up and running and, and optimized but we have and will continue to employ whatever the best method is for the problems that we're attacking and because we define this barrier in this way where it's just black box optimization the underlying system is a black box to us, but we're also a black box to our customers. Yep. And so this allows us to kind of hot swap in the best possible technique to solve their problem and not be constrained in that way. Okay.
0: Okay, cool. Can you talk a little bit about the model evaluation framework that you've built?
1: Yeah. So there's some ICML workshop papers from 2016 that go into quite a bit more detail that are available on our website. Okay. But the idea is, I've just told you that we have an optimization framework that can solve any kind of underlying black box function. And like the first response should be, how do I know whether or not it's working? So internally, we built up this system where kind of traditionally to to publish papers, and I'm guilty of doing this, is you would come up with some strategy, pick three to six of your favorite functions, show that you can outperform some specific techniques on those functions, publish a paper, rinse and repeat. So when we built this up internally, we took the superset of all of those different functions from the academic literature. We took functions that look similar to our customers' data. We took a bunch of open machine learning data sets and strategies. We basically piled them all together. So instead of comparing against three or four different response surfaces, now we're looking at hundreds or thousands of them. In addition to that, we wanted to make sure against all of these different open source methods and against all of these other kind of different global optimization strategies that we could very robustly outperform them. So what we do in the internal evaluation framework is we independently optimize these hundreds of different pathological and real-world problems, many times with SIGOPs and many times with another method. And that other method might be just a new version of SigOpt. And then with high statistical confidence, we can say which one got to the best value fastest, which one got to the, the ultimate best result, which one was the most robust so it didn't have, like in the interquartile ranges are all above a specific value
0: it sounds like to draw an analogy from software engineering you've built a regression testing framework for optimizer yeah so we
1: do use it for regression testing it's run nightly but it's also a way to basically ab test optimizers as right, well right right
0: you're not using it to or to what extent are you using it to inform model choices or i guess the you know what i'm struggling a little bit with is you know so you've got this you've got this, you know, this heap of data sets and functions and things like that. And if you were trying to optimize across all of those, then you've got a least common denominator kind of problem, right? Or, you know, local maxima or something like that.
1: Yeah. So we do have to be wary that we don't overfit to this data set. That's definitely true. One thing that we found, though, is the reason why we built an ensemble-based approach. So let me just,
0: just poke at that. Like, I'm not sure... Is overfitting the right word for what I'm thinking of is, is that, you know, some of it's, it strikes me as the opposite of overfitting, whereas, like, if I were to just look at, I don't really care about all this other data. I care about my problem. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you're optimizing for this kind of broad spectrum and I can, you know, outperform you by just focusing on my problem, you know, I'd probably do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, That makes complete sense. I see where you're coming at here. So this is why we take this ensemble-based approach, because it turns out like the most popular approach doing Bayesian optimization, like Gaussian processes with ARD kernel with expected improvement, actually doesn't do super well in a wide variety of different contexts. So by slotting in the right tool for the job, we can actually hit all of these different facets of different types of problems extremely well. That being said, the no free lunch theorem in computer science still applies here, in so far as if you do have expert knowledge about your underlying system and you build a bespoke optimizer to solve that one specific problem, you are going to outperform a general technique. That being said, you would have to repeat that for the next problem that you attack and the next one and the next one. And so the idea is by having an ensemble of different optimizers, we use the right one for specific contexts, and then a different one for a different context, etc. So instead of having like the lowest common denominator, like you said, just the one size fits all, what we're doing is actually putting in the right tool and automatically learning when we trade it off. So when you're tuning a gradient boosted method, you're getting the right tool. But when you tune a neural network, it's still the same API and same interface, but you're getting the right optimizer. Got it.
0: So what I'm hearing is, in response to my question, like a little bit of both, right? Like you've built this model evaluation framework because fundamentally you're not necessarily trying to you know, outperform a handcrafted model that 50 PhDs has spent five years developing, whatever. You're trying to build a system that can deliver good performance on, you know, in general, what someone throws at it. And so you want to test it against a bunch of, you know, hey, these are things that someone might throw at it and make sure that you get good performance. And the way that you do that is under the covers, You're not just relying on, you know, one specific set of choices, but you're taking an ensemble approach and your optimizer can swap in and out different decisions to produce a a result that's best. That's exactly it. Because what we find more
1: often than not is that people don't assign 50 PhDs for five years for every single optimization problem they have. (laughs) More often than not, they're using grid search, random search, manual tuning, maybe an open source solution. Maybe they have part of their team part-time working on an internal optimizer or something right. like that, and those are the things that we can vastly outperform. If you know it's convex, and you have gradient information, and you have a bunch of expert knowledge, like there is specific tools that you can use to get there, and this is probably a little heavy-handed to use in that situation, but more often than not, what we're doing is we're coming and replacing these very exhaustive, very expensive, very domain-expert-intensive systems, and we can generally outperform those to a high degree. Yeah,
0: And I often like to think of the the tool space in general is like there's, you know, for many enterprises, there's such a huge potential opportunity to apply ML that their ability to staff up, you know, is far outpaced by the opportunity. So at a given staffing level, like you've got this choice, you can either like, you know, Take only the, the biggest opportunity and apply all your resources to that in a very manual way. Or you can, you know, utilize tools that allow folks to be more effective and bite off some of these, you know, some some of the, uh, you know, it's like the a lot of, you know, I'll talk to folks and they'll talk about it like we only go after home runs versus, you know, base hits, right? And this, it sounds like this is a tool for allowing people to, you know. Well, both go after home runs as well as try to increase their hit rate for base hits. Definitely. And what we
1: find with a lot of the firms that we work with is how they differentiate themselves from their competitors is not by black box Bayesian optimization. It's by creating a great recommendation engine or a great algorithmic trading strategy. And if you can hire five more PhDs to to work on that core differentiator or free up five PhDs to do that and then just use SigOp to tune it, they work very additively. And hand in hand, we can accelerate that time to market, accelerate the results, getting to to the best performance, and all of these different things. And I think more and more companies are becoming aware of this and using the right tool for the job. Why rewrite TensorFlow when you can use it? Why write your own Bayesian optimizer when you can use a best-in-class easy REST API? Awesome. Awesome.
0: So what's the what's the best way for folks to learn more? I'm assuming the website? Yeah. yeah,
1: sigop.com or just contact at sigop.com if you want to shoot us an email. We run a complimentary proof of concept pilot. Like we can throw these peer reviewed papers at you to prove that we're as good as we say we are. But at the end of the day, we want to prove it with their underlying models themselves. So... We can work with any enterprise, any underlying system, cloud agnostic, model agnostic. It's also free for students. So if there are any people at universities or researchers at national labs or whatever it is listening to the podcast, Sigop.com slash edu gets you a free enterprise account. I wasted way too much of my (laughs) PhD on this problem. Don't want to do that for anybody else.
0: And what about for folks that are interested in learning about the theoretical foundations of the work? Where would you point them? Are there like three canonical papers or something like that that they should look for? Yeah. So if you go to sigup.com slash
1: research, those all of our papers, we also have a Bayesian optimization primer there that kind of goes into more detail about some of the things I said. Verbally, sometimes it's a little bit hard to describe Gaussian processes and things like that. The math is there. There's references for all those papers as well. So that can kind of take you down the rabbit hole of all the different ways that this has been applied historically. Okay.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Scott. It's been a great conversation and I've learned a ton. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, for your continued feedback and support for more information on Scott and the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 50. Next week, on Tuesday and Wednesday, October 3rd and 4th, I'll be at the Gartner Symposium in Orlando, where I'll be on a panel on how to get started with AI. If you'd like to meet up there, please send me a shout. The following week, I'll be in Montreal for the Rework Deep Learning Summit and hope to be joined by at least one lucky listener. Remember to visit twiml.ai.com slash DLSummit to enter. Contest ends at noon central on October 4th. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.